Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work, the podcast from the British Association of Social Workers. This is space for conversation, discussion with social workers, the individuals they support, and colleagues working in related professions. We consider the key matters affecting social workers as we explore contemporary issues with a focus at the local, national and global levels. Welcome to episode 18 of Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan and today I'm joined by Barbara Keeley MP, co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on Social Work, Alexis Quinn from the Restraint Reduction Network, and Liz Howard, Professional Officer with Baswa England. And we're going to discuss why people with a learning disability and autistic people continue to be inappropriately placed in treatment and assessment centres in secure settings. We discuss the impacts this is having on the people involved and what needs to change. Barbara, Alexis and Liz, welcome to the podcast. I hope you're all well. Barbara, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm here in Greater Manchester. Good to be with you today for the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for joining us. Alexis, how are you? Excellent. Thanks for having me. I'm down in Kent. You're in Kent. Okay. And Liz, how are you doing? Oh, hi. Hi, Andy. Hi, Alexis. Hi, Barbara. Great to be here. I'm in sunny Sheffield today. Lovely, lovely. And I'm in Belfast, as usual. Barbara, you recently sponsored a debate in Parliament's Westminster Hall concerning the 10th anniversary of the investigation into the Winterbourne View Hospital and the Transforming Care Programme. Now, not all of our listeners will be familiar with the specific details of the mistreatment and abuse that was suffered by residents at Winterbourne View. Could you start us off by explaining what was exposed by the BBC's undercover investigation? I can, yes. Um, What BBC Panorama uncovered was a catalogue of abuse and mistreatment there really were an awful lot of specific incidents. It's 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 a shocking piece of film. Uh, but some examples included um, one resident who was showered while she was fully clothed and she got mouthwash poured into her eyes. She had jugs of cold water poured over her head and was kept outside uh, until she was shivering and it was March that she was kept outside having water poured over her. Another resident was asked by a member of staff whether they wanted the staff member to get a cheese grater and grate off their face. Residents were slapped and held down under chairs. They had their hair pulled. They were pinned down while medication was forced into their mouths. One resident was so distressed by the treatment that she tried to throw herself out of a second floor window and was then mocked by the staff. At the time, this treatment was rightly described as torture. Um, Commitments were made. It was never to happen again. But um, I'm glad that Alexis is on uh, this podcast today because I think, as she will tell you, the reality is this kind of behaviour was not stopped and commitments to move people out of these units were not met. And that's what we covered in our debate. And these were adults, these were autistic adults and, and people with learning disabilities, isn't that right, Barbara? Yes, yes, there were people with learning disabilities. And so the, the, the debate was all about the, uh, the, that particular incident as an example of the mistreatment um, of thousands, and it is thousands, of autistic people and people with learning disabilities. Yeah, when I, when I read the transcript of that debate, it struck me that this is a story of multiple failures. So failures, firstly, by oversight bodies to investigate and stop the abuse, um, and also then failure by successive governments to meet their commitments to reduce the number of people living in assessment and treatment units. So after the Winterbourne View scandal, the, the Department of Health conducted a review, and I'm going to quote from that. The department stated that 
people with learning disabilities or autism may sometimes need hospital care, but hospitals are not where people should live. And that's the end of the quote. There was also a serious case review conducted, um, and it stated that hospitals for adults with learning disabilities and autism should not exist, but they do. Barbara, I'm going to put this to you first, but I also want to hear from Alexis on this. Why a decade on from Winterbourne, why do we continue to have people with learning disabilities and autistic people living in hospital settings? Well, to me, it's it's not straightforward. I mean, the short answer is because the government has spent years cutting local authority social care budgets. So at the very time when we should have been expanding community resources and improving the support that there was so that we could shut these units down, um, local authorities have, have been less and less able to support autistic people and people with learning disabilities in the community. And that is a big, big factor. And, you know, there's been lots of targets set and ambitions over the past decade, but they simply haven't been backed up by the investment and the action, the commitment to action needed to establish high quality community services, which is what we need. And just just to to give an example of of the amounts of money, the government is offering a pitiful amount of money to this uh, funding to this programme. Their most recent investment was £62 million over three years, but that would only support a couple of hundred people rather than the more than 2,000 currently trapped in the units. Um, By contrast, um, I and the Labour Party pledged £350 million a year. That is the scale of investment needed to genuinely end the use of these units. Yeah, I mean, I I think Barbara's absolutely right. You know, Winterbourne um, is just one example. You know, I was detained for three and a half years in 12 different hospitals and all of them apart from one. You know, there were elements of Winterbourne going on in all of them. And we must remember, you know, that for autistic people, being detained in such settings is literally like torture. You know, like for me, being shut in, being away from my family, being without anything that's familiar and having to suffer, you know, the chaotic, sensory driven environments that that these hospitals, you know, they are. Um, it's it is it's it's really torturous. You know, you're just waiting for the next overload to happen. And those overloads are so painful and then, you know, they're always met with a meltdown and that's always met with like the most horrific, you know, restrictive practice. Um, and this isn't the fault of the staff working in the hospitals. This is a result, as Barbara said, as a system that's just completely broken. You know, it's really archaic. Um, and there just simply isn't the community provision available. I mean, you know, Winterbourne View was, was a decade ago. You know, I was detained well after that. You know, I should never, ever have been detained in the first place. You know, this is ruining people's lives. This is ruining families' lives. And it's, you know, it's a human rights scandal. And when, Alexis, were you detained? I was detained in um, at the end of 2012 um, and I escaped um, to Africa um, while I was on a section um, I escaped on May the 9th, 2016. But even since then, you know, because the um, because our services and because there isn't the community provision, I was also um, a section for a very, very short time uh, quite recently. Um, and again, it's just so traumatic and just so horrifying and just so completely unnecessary. I mean, the Transforming Care document, which was the, the government's review after Winterbourne, It says that we should no more tolerate people with learning disabilities or autism being given the wrong care than we would accept the wrong treatment being given for cancer. But that wrong care, as you've said, Alexis, is happening all the time. I mean, do we know how many people are currently in assessment and treatment units? It's just a little over 2,000. But I just don't don't even think it's... 
you know, I mean, I don't want to get into like a physical sort of mental, you know, illness debate or, or anything like that. But it, it isn't like that. We're talking about taking people just because they're a little bit different, you know, um, just because they're a little bit different. We're detaining them because they process information differently. We're taking away their human rights because they experience the world differently. There is no sickness. It's not like cancer. There is no sickness here. It's just a different way of being, a different disposition. And that is not okay. And it's, it runs counter to the NICE guidelines as well, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. They state that commissioners and service providers and practitioners should only admit children, young people and adults with a learning disability. I'm sorry, this is their language, not mine, with a learning disability and behaviour that challenges to inpatient units if assessment and care planning show that their needs cannot be met safely in the community. And we know that they can. We know that those needs can be met safely in the community. Well, and, and also the Mental Health Act. The Mental Health Act Code of Practice says it's rarely likely to be helpful. But it's happening. It's happening. It's routinely happening. And it's not a last resort. It's simply because the community has absolutely zero provision for people that experience the world differently. And I'm afraid that's what autism is. You know, it's people that experience the world differently. So the fact that we're taking away people's human rights and locking them in units for, on average, five years is is just horrifying that's scandalous that really is i can't believe so over two thousand people alexis is what you've said is the number of people that are inappropriately placed in in these units and and... it's worse than that it's worse than that there's about a hundred people who are subject to long-term segregation being locked in a room i was locked in a room okay i was long-term segregated just because i was responding to the most awful hospital environment you know, how, and fed on the floor, you know, with just the mattress for company. You know, we saw the case of Bethany being fed through a hatch, exactly the same. And, And nothing, you know, of any merit, as Barbara's pointed out earlier, is being done because there just simply isn't the investment. Just to add to what Alexis is saying, really, but the, the the numbers do really show, do really bear out what she, what she's just been saying, really. And I mean, the dis- distressing thing is the number of children in these units has risen over the past five years. So despite all the rhetoric about attempts to reduce the numbers, there are 215 uh, under 18s in these uh, assessment and treatment units, so-called. Um, and one change is that while the number of people with learning disabilities in the units has fallen, the number of autistic people has actually risen uh, to 660. So that's a third of, of that 2,000. And, you know, detained on what basis? It's, it's as Alexis says, it's just, you know, they're different. They need support for, for the ways in which they're different. Yeah, I just want to, to build on what um, Alexis and Barbara are saying. It is absolutely shocking. And I think along with the fact that there there isn't the right support in the community and, and families aren't able to get the right help at the right time when they need it, there's the lack of understanding about the needs of autistic children, young people, adults, and, and again, adults and young people with learning disabilities, not seeing people's behaviour as communication not understanding from a service perspective about how we need to work preventatively with people and understanding the structural issues that they've both referred to there that are leading to the discrimination and exclusion um, of people with disabilities or those with um, neurodiverse needs is absolutely huge. And in terms of thinking about not just the figures around people that are being detained, but also the number of people that are having a delay in leaving um, hospital care because there isn't the right provision there. We know from figures that in March 20. 21 that 95 people had a delay what we call a delayed transfer of care 
So that means that people continue to be stuck at that point where they don't need to be in that setting that they've never needed to be in, but there isn't the right provision in terms of housing and support. And that's a recurring theme that's been present since Winterbourne View, but actually uh, way beyond that as well. If we go right back, if we go right back to the time of Winterbourne in 2011, when David Cameron was Prime Minister, he pledged to close all inappropriate inpatient units by 2014. So that's that's a catastrophic failure in terms of government. That's seven years ago, and we still have over 2,000 people in these units. Can I just come back to a point we discussed earlier? Language and terminology is so important. And the, the nice guidance that I guidelines that I read out talked about challenging behaviour. Alexis, is it, is it a more appropriate term to use distressed behaviour in these contexts where somebody is um, experiencing distress because of their environment? Is that a better way to look at, at this? I think it's the only fair way to look at it. Um, to be honest, I mean, even language with, you know, am I a person with autism or am I an autistic person? And I think, you know, people sometimes say, oh, this is quite pedantic, but it isn't pedantic, really, because when I was in hospital, you know, it was almost like they tried to separate me from my autism and treat my autism. But autism is my neurology. You know, it affects the way that I process information, the way that I hear things, the way that I see things, the way that, um, you know, I, I kind of... Uh, um, uh, think about things and prioritize things you know every single thing about me is defined by autism and that's why you know the autistic community prefer you know autistic people um, and in terms of challenging behavior you know I, I don't have uh, challenging behavior no more than you have challenging behavior Andy or no more than Barbara has challenging behavior you know if we locked all of you um, in a in a in a setting which was absolutely intolerable, I'm sure you wouldn't be very pleased about it, and you might say, "I don't really like this," and then you know that they'll say, "Well, I'm really sorry, but you've got to stay here," and then you might get a little bit more aggravated, you know, and and after you've been there for five years, you might be especially aggravated. Um, so yes, I would say distressed behaviour is 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 much more appropriate than challenging. Thanks, Alexis. And just then, in relation to the last point you made there being kept somewhere for five years in a situation, in a scenario which is is entirely inappropriate. What is that doing to people? What does that mean to people's mental health and well-being? And it's ruined my life. I mean, you know, it's 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 had such a profound effect. I, I you know, I've, I, I've 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 said before, I, I don't go more than you know a couple of hours without thinking about it. I mean, it used to be a lot more frequently than that. You know, and I used to not even be able to sleep because of it. Um, you know, massively anxious. Um, you know, constantly worried that it might happen again. You know, it it, it had happened again. You know, it can happen again. Um, and until things change, that anxiety that I've got around, you know, having to go back there or, or you know, um, endure, you know, what I can only dis- describe as torture and abuse, um, however well-meaning it was, that's what it was, um, it, it is entirely appropriate because it, it for, for autistic people, it's a real possibility. Um, and I'm not meaning to scaremonger, but, but you know, it, 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 it really is. Um, and And to think, you know, that, your liberty can be taken away so easily really is you know it's just living living with fear but in those units it's it's really scary hey it's really scary you don't know when the next the next bad thing's going to happen to you thank you alexis thanks for sharing in terms of life expectancy as well so putting aside the impacts on well-being right now what impacts does this sort of treatment have in terms of autistic people's life expectancy well, you know, more than 80% of autistic people um, suffer from a mental health condition. And that's not because we've got faulty brains, but that's because we're in constant states of anxiety and, and sadness because of, you know, what we're exposed to on a day by day basis. 
Um, and this means, you know, that for autistic people with um, uh, lower support needs, you know, people like myself, um, what was previously called high functioning autistics, whatever that means, um, we're nine times more likely to die by suicide. Um, and our life expectancy because of that is 54 you know, and, and when I was in hospital, you know, I nearly died a, a number of times and, and I was age 27, you know. So, I mean, the, the thought that I would be dying at 54 now is just so harrowing. Um, and for autistic people with higher support needs, um, it's it's 42. And um, that's a lot of that is because of diagnostic overshadowing. OK, so where, where people just aren't listened to because they're autistic or because they have a learning disability. And again, there's no reason that we should be dying that young. It's simply because our needs aren't being met. And Alexis, in terms of the best way of meeting the needs of autistic people and people with a learning disability in terms of housing, is it a case of supporting people to live in the community? Well, I guess it's a bit like me asking Barbara what's best for her and Andy what's best for you and Liz what's best for you. You'll all come up with different things. And it's the same for autistic people and people with learning disabilities. So for me, what works best for me is living in my family home. My mum and dad um, still support me. Um, I, I've had two children uh, on my own because that was my preference. Um, and, you know, w- we work out how our family best, 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 best works together, I think, like most families do. And, and all families look different and that's totally OK. Um, but I still don't I still am unable to fold my clothes up. I'm, I'm able to do, you know, so many things that other people consider normal. But actually, you know, I think even with the pandemic, what we've seen is that, that life life has changed. And, and um, you know, so for me, not having to go to the shops now and Internet shopping just being a fact of life, um, you know, it, I suppose I think it just looks differently. And how do we know what's best for people? Well, we just need to ask them. Yes, it's a, it's a, it's a recurrent theme which is coming up in more and more of these episodes is you need to ask people. And what, what, is, what is the barriers to asking people? Why, why do professionals not ask people? I think they don't ask people because, I, I, you know, and, and this is maybe a bit, you know, a bit out there me saying this, but I just think people just don't have a massive amount of ambition for autistic people. It's like almost you get that label from three and you're suddenly, you know, a, a sort of a, a lesser person functioning below normal. I think, you know, it, it kind of gives you that gives you that um gives you that label. And, and, and the main problem, I think, is something called the double empathy problem from Damien Milton. He's a researcher, an autistic researcher at the University of Kent. And, and what the double empathy problem says is that you have problems understanding me, okay? And I have problems understanding you, Andy, because you see the world in a certain way. I see the world in a certain way. And we have a problem then communicating. But what happens is, is that autistic people, because we're a minority, are expected to make all of the adjustments to you. And you guys don't meet us halfway. Um, so I think what we need to do is, is kind of try be aware of the double empathy problem and try and meet each other in the middle somewhere. It's interesting um, referring it to that, uh, Alexis, double empathy, but I haven't heard, I'm going to look into that actually, because I haven't heard it re- referred to like that, certainly from the angle that we're coming from. It's exactly exactly the same as what you've just described there. And it's good to have that that uh, better understanding about that is about we're really through our homes, our hospitals campaign work and the resource development that we've had at Basware England. We've got a real focus on that being the fundamental principle about listening to people, finding ways to connect, enabling people to communicate and really listening to what people and families are saying. And that does involve that reasonable adjustments. It involves us understanding 
what needs to be in place to enable people to communicate, to enable autistic people, people with learning disabilities to be able to communicate what they want and, and what's right for them in terms of support. So that really is a fundamental kind of principle, uh, certainly of social work, but particularly of this aspect of work here. So finding out what matters to people. Treating people as equal citizens is absolutely key. And that's all predicated on being able to demonstrate that we, we're working in a human rights-based way. That, that's, that's the starting point, that we're listening to people, we're person-centred, and that we've kind of developed resources and tools to enable social workers to be able to work in that way, to reinforce the social workers and people and families that that's the way that we need to be working with them. It is about uh, building support around the person and their needs and their preferences and, and, and finding out those and knowing those. Obviously, that's the way we can make sure that uh, any support packages we put together are sustainable. But I think the other thing to think about is, uh, you know, that it, 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 some, some real thought has to be given to, to uh, people being the right people to provide that support. I mean, the, the awful examples like the ones that Alexis has talked about in places that she was trapped and uh, Winterbourne View, the, it, it was almost as if it didn't matter whether, whether people understood, uh, you know, and, and had the empathy. You, I mean, Alexis talks about empathy, and that's very important. There weren't people with empathy to bother to find out uh, about what the people uh, who were living in, in Winterbourne View or the other units needed. And that that's absolutely vital. So build the support around the person's needs and their preferences and what they want but also with people that are capable of finding that out and i think that's key it's, it's we cannot have these situations where you know un, untrained people are just are just used liz you mentioned the basel england homes not hospitals campaign um, as part of that campaign basel england has described it as a false economy to not have the right homes with the right support in place how does the financial cost of supporting a person with a learning disability or an autistic person in a community setting compare to the cost of placing them in a hospital setting? Do we know that? Well, there's been some recent information um, published, thanks Andy for, for coming on to that, um, that, that kind of highlights um, that the cost of uh, detention in a hospital setting for a person that, that's run by the NHS is around £3,000 per week. So for a six-month stay, and bearing in mind that we've already heard that the actual average length of stay is five years plus, um, for a six-month stay in an assessment and treatment unit, that, that cost is £78,000, which is absolutely huge, absolutely huge. And one of the issues that we really need to tackle is around funding because whilst the person is in that hospital setting of course social care are not contributing um, to that person's the cost of the person's care and what that does is it actually provides a perverse disincentive then in terms of a person being supported to live in or return to live in the community um, with the right support in place and we know and Barbara referred to it before and Alexis did as well I think that the impact of austerity and cuts and continual cuts to social care funding means that there are absolutely huge pressures on the social care system um, and what that's creating um, really there is a situation where people are then stuck in these hospital settings with that cost per week. So a key kind of aspect of the work that we've been doing through the Homes Not Hospitals campaign around particularly around commissioning is around sorting out the money what's happening with the money there needs to be the investment there and there needs to be the money sorted out so that we're clear about how much money is available to support people in the community and that those right services are in place 
do we do we have even sort of headline estimates of what it costs to support on average a person in the community? Uh, well, the, the figure we were given on the Health Select Committee in a recent inquiry um, was that a package of support for a former inpatient would cost around £66,000 a year. But I mean, it, it's difficult to pin it to, to that actual amount. But that was that was an average amount uh, that, that figure that was given. Um, but it, you know, it depends. For some people, it will be less. For some people, it will be more. And it might vary at different at different points in terms of if, if they have needs for different support. Barbara, it's fair to say then that on average, community support is actually less expensive than, than hospital care. Is that right? Yes. I mean, in, in terms of, of what local authorities fund, we are talking about them funding complex needs and, and, and um, in, in some cases. But it, it, absolutely all the figures stack up to say the government would save money uh, you know, over these very, very expensive places, 150,000, 200,000, more than that a year, um, if uh, uh, if supporting the community. Th- there might be some d- uh, d- double running costs. I mean, clearly you, you'll be in a stage at the start of organising support where you're having to invest in support and, it, and, it, and there's a bit of double running. But, you know, if there was a, a, sub- sub- a substantially enough pot of funding, that could be done. Yeah, I mean, just just to, just to, uh, I suppose just build on what what Liz and Barbara have said. You know, for 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 me, um, my my care that I needed initially would cost about five thousand pounds. You know, I needed some occupational therapy, I needed some some psychology, but I was put on like a twelve month waiting list. You know, and and this is this is happening to to a lot of autistic people, a lot of people with learning disabilities. They need something really small, and because it's not there, people enter a crisis. Five thousand pounds is a one-off. Is that? Is That's that what all I needed. My brother died. I had a baby. I just needed a little, little someone to talk to. Just a bit of support, Auntie. I just needed some help, and I went and asked for help. And the help that I got was a hospital stay. And now, listen, you know, Liz was saying, uh, what was the figure you said, Liz, for a six months? Seventy-eight thousand pounds. Yeah, I mean, my months. my hospital bill was a couple of million. You know, I was nursed at times on four to one. Why was I on four to one? I mean, I was a teacher before those doors shut at a grammar school in Kent. You know, I was a teacher. As soon as those doors shut, I was this mental patient, you know, that needed needed all of this, you know, because I was reacting to the environment. So we're talking about allowing crises to escalate, locking people in hospitals. And what we're doing by spending all of these great sums of money is traumatising people. We're paying a lot of money to traumatise people. That's what we're doing. There was there was a really good example, if I could come in on on, on that, and, and I think the Lex, what Alexis talks about is is it's just astonishing. But there was one of the people who was resident in uh, in Winterbourne View, and he had lived um, in the community. His care provider had asked for a few more hours of support and been turned down, and that esca- that had escalated. Uh, and and sort of ran away with itself, and he ended up, you know, being abused in Winterbourne View. It's it's ridiculous. And in fact, the situation he returned to was, you know, was back in the same village with the original care provider, but just at a higher, slightly higher level of care and support. So there's there's an absolute concrete example there, and Alexis is is a good example too. And two weeks ago, Barbara, a young girl, aged sixteen, who was in nappies, just out of nappies, really, when Winterbourne happened, who should never have been in hospital has just been um, um, gone back home to her parents. Her parents have asked for some support and because she gets a less than five minute phone call a day from the hospital, that's considered intense support. And so thank goodness her parents are fabulous and her mum's actually a nurse and can you know provide a measure of, otherwise she'd be back in there. And we're doing this to children too. 
And the austerity programme, that's taken, you keep me right in this, Barbara, it's taken £9 billion out of local authority social care budgets over a decade, is that correct? That's right. And I mean, that's why we get into these situations that local authorities, when asked to provide uh, more hours of support, uh, are saying they can't do it. And of course, it, it pushes them then into this awful decision of shoving the cost onto the NHS. And, and that's that's a totally wrong basis for, for uh, planning support. The All-Party Parliamentary Group for Social Work, which you co-chair, Barbara, along with David Simmons, MP, it's launched an inquiry into the government's proposals to integrate social care with the NHS. Does that issue, um, does the issue of placing people in hospital settings because of constraints on local authority budgets, does that add weight to the case for an integrated health and social care system? It, I mean, it, it's connected in a way, but I think what we need to do is get away from this perverse system where it makes financial sense for the local authority to push people into being an NHS funded place in a hospital because it will save them money, that local authority. If overall there's no saving of money and in fact it costs more, then, you know, but some, some way could have been found that you know around this you know it's a question of creating different pots of funding uh, we need to deal with the financial incentives in the system so that the money follows the person and and i mean there've been there've been ways that that has happened uh, when people were moved out of long term psychiatric hospitals in the 80s that happened and, and there was a system of dowries created whereby if the local authority was going to settle somebody in their community they received a chunk of money to pay for the housing to pay for the support over the years um, and that that would make sense. I mean, it's it, it's not only just simple; it has been done before. And but also a system which keeps as its primary goal the the quality of life of the people that are that are involved in the system. Because I don't want to get so bogged down into talking about the finances that we lose track of what actually matters in terms of providing the best quality care to people with learning disabilities and autistic people. But doing the right thing, doing the right. Th- there's no disincentive to do the right thing, is there? If it, if 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 overall it would be a better system and it and it might cost less. There's just no disincentive. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to say, you know, we're talking about the amount of money that we're spending on the autistic person or the person with learning disabilities, but it extends way further than that. You know, parents are absolutely, you know, just beaten down by this and are accessing their GP surgeries, you know, psychologists, you know, counsellors, because they're just suffering the most extreme kind of stress and vicarious trauma that you mustn't forget the cost of that as well, emotionally and financially. Absolutely. Barbara, in relation to commissioning, you've called for the creation of a commissioner independent of government um, to oversee the process of moving people out of hospital settings um, to be supported in the community. Could you give us a bit of information about what powers you would envisage that commissioner having and also why you think it's beyond the ability of government to actually deliver on the issue itself? Well, clearly the last 10 years have shown that it's, it's, the government is not going to deliver on this issue. It's, you know, and, and there just seem to be constant excuses. So the, the key thing that a commissioner would do would be to hold the government to account. And and make very clear where where the practice is falling short of where it needs to be. It's vital that the government is not monitoring its own performance against its targets. That's absolutely clear. And there are other commissioners. There's a children's commissioner. Why should there not be a commissioner independent of government that can com- comment on and monitor uh, and, and and guide forward? So um, the, the government is has actually shown over the ten years that it simply will not deliver on promises that it makes. Liz, as part of the Homes Not Hospitals campaign, Baswa England has also called for the creation of a, I think it's a national and lead local commissioner. Um, are you optimistic that that recommendation is going to be heeded? 
Well, in terms of, so we're definitely supporting what, what Barbara's saying there. And I think for the very reasons that Barbara's saying it's needed, yes, that's part of our campaign activity and we've been pushing for that. So we, um, we're now having uh, regular meetings with Department of Health and Social Care and that's something that we're pressing them on. We've got the evidence base through our homes, not hospitals, Basra, England, um, kind of uh, research work that we've done through the resource development. And we're very clear from our members um, at Basra that that's what they want um, us to push for is that accountability, because that's what we're missing at the moment is the accountability. Thanks, Liz. Alexis, you know, we've discussed Winterbourne View in quite a bit of detail. That wasn't a standalone incident. Walton Hall, Yew Trees Hospital and also Muckamore Abbey in Northern Ireland, they all present examples of horrific abuse and a violation of people's human rights. But we know that um, it's well documented that there is ongoing concerns about misuse of restraint and seclusion across a wide range of care settings. It's actually an issue we examined just a month ago, back in June, specifically in relation to children in special educational settings. I'm really keen to hear your views on what needs to change to ensure people's needs are met and that restrictive practices aren't used or are only used as an absolute last resort scenario. It, yeah, I mean, I think we just we need to, to think about autism and people with learning disabilities differently. You know, I know that's sort of a, a bit of a big ask, um, but I, I think we need to, to see them as a difference and treat people, you know, that, that have those different ways of beings as human you know the fact that we're so quick and so easy to restrain people to lock young children in rooms and handcuff them and 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 do all manner of things to them means that we're seeing them as less than human I mean that you know you know um I mean there was the case wasn't there just two or three weeks ago at Tycoriton in Wales you know where there was where was extreme abuse of 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 young children um a woman, a young girl, sorry, locked in her room because she was menstruating, you know, um, talk of uh, sex acts in front of a, a young boy, you know, that, that was at the hospital, uh, unnecessary prone restraint, you know, which we know was, was kind of um, outlawed in, in 2014. And why are all of these things happening? You know, why are they happening? And I can only assume it's because we're seen as, as, as less, than, less than human. And that's prone restraint, which is shown on multiple times to, to prove, can prove fatal. That's absolutely right. I mean, pe- people have died. Um, and, um, you know, obviously Shaney's law, I mean, that's taken the government two years to, to get any, to get anywhere near the, the guidance still isn't done, you know, and, and he died um, in a hospital while he was a voluntary patient. You know, it's it's just and I think, you know, what I think is really awful is when you've got you know these layers of 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 inequality, you know, whether it's somebody like like Shaney, who's black and, and dysregulated or, or me, like a woman and autistic or a child who, who's got additional support needs. Then you really see, you know, the, the kind of the massive, massive inequality that, that's occurring. So it's about thinking about people differently for me. Thank you, Alexis. Liz, as part of um, the Homes Not Hospitals campaign, um, it highlights the importance of people having named social workers. And I know this is a concept that was previously piloted by the Department of Health and Social Care. I'm keen to know what that role entails and the skills that the individuals in that position would need to have to support people and their families. 
Thanks, Andy. Yeah, um, so as, as you rightly say, the Homes at Hospitals campaign is, is building on um, the pilots and the evaluation of those pilots um, that were initiated through the Department for Health and Social Care, the name Social Worker. And the idea behind that role is very much about having an understanding about how uh, the name Social Worker could contribute to individuals with learning disabilities, autistic people and those that might have mental health needs in terms of achieving better outcomes and, and living the lives that they want to. Um, and it's really about, um, you know, people being more in control of decisions about their own future so again that, that very key role in listening and understanding what individuals and families are saying will work for them ensuring that people can live with dignity and independence and have the respect that they deserve and they're all the things that we strive for and that's kind of what we see is coming through the consistency of having a name worker so really, we're showing that, that continuity, having someone that can get to know that person and their family, building positive relationships with people, lead to the outcomes of having people having fulfilling and independent lives and having the support to make choices that are right for them. So particularly we're thinking that that can be, again, with children and families um, and again with adults, we see that approach working. That's about, you know, people that are in the community at the moment, but also those people who are in assessment and treatments um, units or specialist services as well. Social workers really do bring a strong set of social work values into practice, which challenge assumptions and judgments about people. They promote human rights based approach from which to explore and understand people from their own situation that reaches far beyond their diagnosis. That requires social workers to have a deeper knowledge and a more specialised approach when supporting people to ensure that admissions to hospital can be avoided and the right support can be put in place. And for those people that are in hospital already, that involves challenging what's happening to them, promoting that human rights based approach, ensuring that people are aware of how they need to make reasonable adjustments to ensure that people can communicate properly what, what they want and what's happening to them and ensuring that there are timely plans in place. And that can often involve challenge to allied professionals um, from the medical professional or other professions as well, but with the ultimate aim of enabling people to return home with the right support as soon as possible. So we've got a really, really key role and we see the name social worker as being the vehicle for achieving those changes for people. Yeah, and just building on what Liz has said, and also something that, that Barbara said earlier, it's got to be the right support, hasn't it? It's got to be the right people. And I think part of that is knowing about autism, you know, knowing what it means to be autistic and knowing what it means to have a learning disability or any other co-occurring conditions. So, I mean, I'm hoping that the Oliver McGowan mandatory training will have some kind of um, impact on that. Um, but unless, you know, as Liz is saying, it's kind of values based and it's it's that training um, is coupled with some ambition. So it's about it's about upskilling the workforce. And again, this is something I think that the government's failed to do. Um, but hopefully, hopefully this training will go some way towards doing that. And does social work education, Liz, the social work degree courses, do they have a sufficient focus on issues around um, the needs of autistic people, the needs of people with learning disabilities? Yeah, I think there's more work to do um, in terms of uh, qualifying social work education. Um, I mean, we would call for there to be a specific focus um, on um, working with people with learning disabilities and autistic people and having that understanding, as Alexa says, about um, you know what that means for people and how we should be working with people. So that reaches far beyond the kind of policy and legislative framework requirements as well. But that's also about um, social workers being taught and having an understanding about the social model of disability 
and understanding the organisational structure, structural barriers that exist um, for people within society. And Alexis described, you know, the kind of multiple oppressions that can occur for people um, within their life and when they're in the system and how that impacts on people and how that excludes people as well um, from getting the right support and from being able to live their life. I mean, we certainly know from um, some consultative work that we did um, at Basra England with the sector when we were developing the capability statements um, for social work um, with people with learning disabilities and autistic people that in terms of learning and development opportunities reaching beyond kind of social work education that actually there's a real inconsistency up and down the country and um, you know a lot of a lot of what social workers are doing is self-directed learning experiential learning so learning on the job um, and actually the availability of training through employers which can range from range from like e-learning to some face-to-face -face training but there's very little training that's actually done uh, by people with lived experience so uh, by and with autistic people or by and with uh, people with learning disabilities so actually there's a real huge gap there in terms of social work education and some of the resources that we've developed through our homes or hospitals campaign and the capability statements go some way to to filling that gap because it's really important that social workers do have an evidence base and do have information and guidance they can refer to to ensure they're working in a human rights based way with people but there needs to be greater focus on education around that thank you liz now to wrap up i want to hear from each of you i want to have one the one priority suggestion one priority change that needs to happen barbara if you were made um uh minister for health and social care sorry secretary of state for health and social care in the next government what would be the one change you would make on your first day in office to address the injustices we've talked about today well the the, the one change the one straightaway change is the investment in the community services that we need to enable people to live independently um but I, but I think in the longer term, what, what you would do on top of that, because you need it as well, and we've touched on it, Alexis in particular has talked on it, we need an attitude change. We've got to stop seeing autistic people and people with learning disabilities as people who need care and recognise that they are autonomous and deserve this, the independence that, that you know other people take for granted. So I think Alexis has made that very clear. So you need those two things. You need the community services and resources that would support people, but we need that attitude change. Thank you, Barbara. Alexis? Just what Barbara said. Just what Barbara said. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thanks, Alexis. Liz? final thoughts? Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> echoing what Barbara and Alexis have said there, but I also think, I'm just thinking from the kind of social work perspective as well, and what we've been saying about the way that social workers need to be working with people. I think short term, the thing that everybody can do is to identify and address the things which are acting as barriers to enabling people to, to communicate and to be heard and for that to be addressed. That's everybody's business, but I think social workers have got a really key role in ensuring that that's happening. And I think longer term, um, again, building on the points that I'm going to choose too, which is naughty, but building on the point that um, Barbara was making about the appointment of lead commissioners, that is absolutely key in terms of that accountability. And the final thing from me would be to say a radical approach again with the money. So not just thinking about the investment, but thinking about that, how that money is managed. We know that there are lots of issues around funding. Uh, debates, discussions, disagreements, which actually cause and, and mean that people are in, in hospital for longer than they need to be. So what we're saying as part of our campaigning activity through Homes at Hospitals is that one budget holder, one lead authority and one person or one organisation having that budgetary accountability. So there's clear allocation and clear transparency around the budgetary approach. Thank you, Liz. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks for sharing so openly. Um, this has been a wonderful episode. Thanks so much, Andy. 
Thanks, Andy. Thanks, Alex and Barbara. It's good to see you all. Cheers. Thank you. Bye. Take care. Bye.